Welcome back to the farmstead. We're glad you're here. Pull up a chair and rest your heels, and let's talk about large family living on the homestead. Let's get after it. Let's do it. All right, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Contrary Farmstead. We're glad you're here. It's been a little bit, hasn't it? Nah, it's been summer. <laughs> It's been a crazy summer. It's been an awesome summer. It's been um, it's been unlike most summers that we've had in the past. So that's been a little bit of an adjustment for Mama um, because several of our kids went to summer camps and they were all in different directions. And that was an adventure over the river and through the hills into Michigan. And you don't have little babies on your hips trying to get everything. Don't done. have little babies on my hips, but we we had a awesome summer and the kids i think all had an awesome summer and we're kind of kind of getting back into the the steam of things here we it was uh we've started we're gonna have our first day of co-op soon and we've we've started back into our books we've had a fun time uh hanging out kayaking being outdoors uh getting a little bit done on on the uh the addition and, uh, yeah, the addition took the hottest part of the summer. I don't know how that worked out. The, the coolest part of the summer, we didn't do anything on it. The hottest part of the summer, we did what we could. And it seemed like it was always the hottest days we had to go get stuff done out I'm there. not a construction expert, but it seems like it's better to put a roof on in August than it is February. Well, that's true. I just didn't, I meant, I meant like having to take, you know, like... 40 sheets or 80 sheets of drywall and and uh into the addition and and that was a lot of hot sweaty it's a whole work. lot of everything when you do every aspect of it yourself and so we're learning that uh in true burns fashion we, we bite off more than we can chew eat it cold it just takes a lot longer to do absolutely everything everything but yeah it's going good we've got this we got a little break though didn't we we did we got we've been able to kayak and we've had lake days and we've gotten together with family and the bees are all still alive and healthy and the kids are still alive and healthy i think we've had a great summer <laughs> and we even got a night away to ourselves. we did well, you know, we had an exciting announcement late this spring, and we have been looking forward to it all summer. So we finally got to go and visit Ben and Erica Wagner at Hooting Hills Organic Farm. And we got to visit with them, but also a lot of other amazing people at Mark Shepard's workshop that he did there. So that was absolutely awesome. Um, he had a um, the special guest speaker. He was super hot. <laughs> <laughs> he was a cutie. Uh, it actually, it was you. But um, I thought you did an amazing job. That was super cool to see you kind of... I get to see you talk to like people one-on-one, but to have you talk to a group of people was pretty awesome. And to hear you talk about kind of our... Uh, you know, Greg and Susan's excellent adventure in farming and how we have just done everything headfirst and, you know, never just dipped our toes in it. And so that was fun to hear you talk. And I have heard Mark before, but, you know, I think in uh, 
five years, for almost five years, it's been since we heard him talk the first time. It, he, you know, he's changed too. So it was great to hear him again and um, get to see some of that earthworks in action. That's so cool. That is so cool. I just had an amazing time. It was fun. I, not only did we, get to, did we get to spend time with each other, but we got to spend time with like-minded folks who are heading down their own journey in life. They, every journey is different. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but it seems like there's there are certain lighthouses uh, that kind of connect us all, and, and Mark has definitely been one of those, uh, I think, to us all. And it was fun to be able to share our family's journey uh, and, and what we've actually done uh, with the education from Mark, uh, we're you know we're not just uh, hanging around hiding, holding information, uh, and never to actually do anything with it ever someday because we're afraid to make mistakes. We're afraid to to take chances or or to put ourselves out there. We just well, and go. I don't think like like you. I don't think Mark wants everybody to be a little Mark Shepherd. I think he wants people to take information that he puts out and do it their way. And you tell your story so that people can either, you know, do something similar or go in their own direction and just take it and run with it, whatever, um, whatever suits them best. And that that's what's so nice about um, you guys is that you're able to tell it in a way that um, it's, it's not to be duplicated. It's to be, it's to be added to it's it's so that somebody can take that it's a stepping stone you didn't take and do everything the way mark did it you know when he started out and uh we never hope for anybody to take what we do we've done and you know do it exactly the way we've done it because we've made so many mistakes too and so i think by sharing and going and listening to these people you can help adjust your path or add to your path and and just make it better what I really appreciate about Mark uh, and his his style is he's not just a uh, I'm going to draw you know pretty pictures and show you all these hypothetical situations and uh, this is how you solve all the world's problems with this template. That's not it at all. He no. he, he he teaches you you know why these things uh, are are going on. What 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 is uh, appropriate uh, for the context that he speaks in, um, and then goes out in the field and everyone has flags, everyone's running lasers, everyone's running lines, everyone's actually putting these systems in place, creating permanent agricultural systems to first and foremost feed ourselves before we try to feed anybody else. Well, what was great is because the last workshop we went to, we didn't actually get to do, like there was no, what is that thing called? A, do- a dozer. Yep. There wasn't a dozer there. And so um, we set out some flags and stuff, but we never actually got to see the dozer do the work. Well, on this particular um, plot of land at Ben and Erica's, they have 50 acres. So that's awesome. And like... It's so different than our homestead, you know, but it was so awesome to see Mark was having to readjust what he even thought he was going to potentially do um, because there would you would hit a wall and you go, oh, I can't do that. It's too it's not on my it's not on his land or it's not yeah, the topographical map says this and reality says this. this. So what do we do? Yeah, what do we and do? That, we have I, to adjust. And that's the awesome thing about learning from Mark and that style is you're not just pigeonholed to saying, Oh, well, I'm supposed to run a zero percent grade for four miles and run these swales to these ponds and these discharges and blah 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 blah. You get out in the field you have an idea of what you want to do, you understand how they work together. 
why they work together. And then when you get out into the field and you end up with this super high ridge and these super low valleys and these squirrely curves and lines and you have these big pond areas and mm-hmm. how are we going to make this all tie in? Yep. Well, you start running lasers, you start running the flags, you see how it's going to work, you adjust, and then everything just works together. Yeah. And that's the great thing. Uh, there's, there's, there's so many of... There's so many learning opportunities where you never get boots on the ground. You, there's never machines on the ground. You don't actually see systems ever being installed. Uh, and to see that uh, and then to, to see all of the, the water capturing opportunities, you yes, know, miles so of swales, fun. thousands and thousands and thousands of gallons of water that aren't just running uh, on the surface of the property down to the street, but they're actually being captured on the land to use for tree crops and livestock uh, and for their own, uh, all their own watering needs. It's, it's, it's just really amazing to, to kind of see that in action. Yeah, it was so, it was so fun. I could watch a dozer all day long though. You know, just the, like he would, he was doing the pond and it was just back and forth and back and forth. And it's so fun. He's an I, can't artist, even, yeah. I can't even imagine, you know, being one of their boys, uh, Ben and Erica had two little boys. It, it just so fun. I can't even. You imagine. can't not. Yeah, it's. It was so fun. Mark has an incredible uh, dirt guy. He, he's is nothing short of an artist on, on the machine. Does yeah. incredible work. Uh, Karen did a great job getting everything orchestrated. All of the people put in place and yes. made sure everything happened. That's probably a, 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 a thankless job behind the scenes there. But Karen did a, <laughs> a wonderful job uh, making it all happen, getting people connected, making sure everyone had what they needed. Uh, to be able to have that kind of opportunity, it was, it's it's an understatement to say that it was an honor to be able to share our story and to be a part um, of that event. It was it was definitely one of the highlights. I'll I'll never forget it. It was uh, it's it was just it it was an honor to be able to share um, and to talk with folks after um, about it um, was was awesome too. I yeah, I was so thankful, Grandma put on her superhero cape and she rode with me up to Michigan to pick up our oldest from summer camp and then drove me back to meet you so that you could pick me up and take me to this workshop with you and she took seven kids home and so yeah we have to give a little shout out to grandma for uh, taking care of seven kids while we got that that day and a half to hang out and meet all these awesome people and be at this workshop so you could speak i really wanted to hear you speak and i think mom knew that it was important for me too to kind of um that it was really important that to me to be there for you so i i enjoyed that and was thankful she was able to do that for us i think it was important for us to you know get a night away and get you know like super super wild like we slept like an entire eight hours and 46 minutes that was like without feet or arms living on the edge slapping us in the face or mom i'm thirsty or i have to pee or yeah. It seems like anything that's worth doing, uh, it's definitely worth uh, the struggle that it seems like to, to, to make those kind of things happen. Yeah. There's always challenges, you know, that oh, pop up. Yeah. With you seven know. kids, you can't run to the grocery store without going, well, well, how the logistics of this, 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 you know. Right. We don't have it all figured and it, out. And it's worthwhile. We, we get to the workshop and have the opportunity to actually sit down with Mark to record a podcast. 
Oh, and you know, it's not Greg Burns, you know, studio style. So it'll be a little bit more, you know, where you guys got to sit down at their kitchen table. So it was a little <laughs> bit more, you know, uh, rustic of a podcast for you than I like than that Bill rustic. Here. Yeah, so it, rustic, will, it will be a, a different recording sound to the podcast. Yeah. But I think it'll be so enjoyable. Mark has so many nice things to say, and I think. Um, for you guys, you know, you've had now five or six years of, you know, infusion and you've, you've had this opportunity to kind of think about if I was able to talk to him, what would I say? Yeah. And then everything, (laughs) and then I got thrown for a loop because the mobile uh, podcast studio totally crashed and I couldn't get it back up. And so I frantically ran into town that night, found uh, the best I could, a USB mic, hooked it up. Uh, It's sitting on the kitchen table right there at the Wagner's place. So, you know, when Mike and when Mark and I talk, you know, we're waving our hands, we're slapping the table, uh, we're cracking, cracking open cans and you hear all that. And I think it's, it's, there's, there's a certain element of the recording to where it's just sitting around a kitchen table with all the noise and I think that's beautiful. And I, I thought I knew what I was. I, I thought I knew what I wanted to ask Mark. I thought I knew what I wanted to talk to Mark. But I never prep anything ahead of time. I just kind of go with it. It makes it more organic. And see what happens. Yeah. And then so we went down and we shot through a conversation that I was completely unexpected. What's beautiful about it is it's not just a conversation that you would expect to hear from Mark Shepard. It's not, I've never heard a conversation quite like this. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to maybe in the future sitting down uh, with microphones and, and going down uh, some of these other deep, uh, dark rabbit holes that seem to pop up as you one thing pops up and then it's a rabbit hole. I'm, I'm thinking, oh, man, this and this and this and this and to kind of articulate that uh, and, and ask questions and, and uh, engage in conversation. It was it was it was an honor uh, as well. Um, so I guess without further ado, it is my honor to. Introduce the infamous string duster, a man who doesn't color between the lines, he draws them, the contrary farmer himself, Mark Shepard. So we're here uh, at the end of the first day of work at uh, the Hooting Hills Organic Farm with the Wagner family. There's a bunch of people here. In western central Ohio, right on the Indiana border. border. Yeah, Uh, it's awesome. There's a bunch of folks here trying to figure out where in, in the world they fit in this whole mix, what they're going to do with the rest of their life, and this is a launching point for them. Uh, it was cool. I got to speak with a lot of folks last night around the fire to get to know them, get to learn where they are, what they're trying to do with the rest of their life. Uh, and it seems like folks are drawn to your message, but more importantly, the fact that you take action with the message and actually do something with it. Today there's a dozer on the ground cutting a pond, cutting swales, actually putting all the things everyone always learns for the rest of their life, but actually puts it into action and everyone is seeing that. Uh, and just by hearing folks' reaction already, they're just when you can see the work being done in the field and not just sit around and talk about it, uh, it's it's an enormous... And they're out doing it. We've got they're everybody's out there participating. lasers, the whole nine. Yeah. A lot of folks know Susan and I storied where your work, us uh, sitting down and following <laughs> you, uh, hearing a podcast with you and Diego on the Permaculture Voices podcast was the spark that, that put the, the engine in motion to get us down the road. It's cool to see folks that are doing the same thing right now. <clears throat> I think what I love the most about this is you're actually doing something. This, these aren't just topographical maps that you're saying, this looks like this, it should go here, you know, go home, do it, get this machine, try it out. You're actually showing folks 
what this looks like. What kind of impact do you see folks uh, in their life when they actually are taking the things that you're teaching, that you're preaching, showing them how to actually use those tools, showing them the tools? Is there a difference in folks that are just going to take information and sit in their parents' basement and never do anything with it versus they're actually going to do something about it? (laughs) Oh, there's a total difference in the people. What it is and, and how that comes to be, I don't know. You know, why is it that when this ancient silverback gorilla bit you on the ass, you jumped up and did something? I have no idea. And what your life is, what it was before and what it's become now, I can only, like, surface, surface, superficially, is that how they say it? I can only look at the surface and see what difference there is. Um, So I don't know the real change that went on inside, but there is a difference. And I'll just use as an example, there's this uh, client that... The uh, the parents were somewhat uh, financially well off, and the son was never he was really smart. It's really brilliant kid, super smart. You know, I mean, he can read anything and memorize, memorize it like that. <clears throat> he started getting into this whole permaculture and uh, and regenerative agriculture, whatever it was, and he starts really going off the deep end. He decides to quit university and come back and live at home and live in his bedroom and learn all this stuff and read all this stuff and his parents are like what do we do about this kid he's just like hanging out in there you know doesn't do his own laundry doesn't do anything doesn't contribute at all whatever whatever so they thought alright so, so is this your passion kid is this your passion you really want to do this yeah I'm going to do this I'm following so and so and so and so and so and so and read the books and all of a sudden dad's like wow all this makes so much sense well dad happened to, to be a like a financial prepper and he's one of these guys that, you know, the world the world economy is coming to an end. Mm. Tomorrow we got to be ready. Yeah. And he literally has a vault with precious metal coins, collectible coins, that has an astronomical amount of wealth in it that I've never even earned in my life. <laughs> because you're going to need this when yeah. it all comes down and the zombies come marching right. up the road and stuff like that. Well, so this kid's like, yeah, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And then they got to this point. It's like, well, whew, we're having difficulty. We put in this big, huge... Um, hoop house and because you need a hoop house well they live in the southern half of the USA and quite frankly there's what two days of frost a year in the south (laughs) we're kind of northers and we know a little bit different thing about frost and growing season so you've got like two days of frost down there what the heck do you really need a greenhouse oh control the climate and all this kind of stuff so they had like two different climate controlled greenhouses with the swamp cooler the evaporative coolers on it, the big fans and all that kind of stuff because we can grow anything it's like well what are you growing well well nothing Jeez. what do you mean nothing well because we haven't quite figured out what it is we want to grow then why did you just spend forty thousand dollars in these greenhouses so then you go into the house that the parents moved out of because they bought another property and they figured let's set this kid up this is his farm he does this whole thing <clears throat> you go in the house and in the living room There's a path through the middle of all the dirty clothes on the floor. Then on the outside rim around the walls, about a foot and a half wide, uh, are seed packets. There's this seed and that seed and this seed. Every heirloom variety of every seed you ever could imagine. I think it was June or July when I was there, and it's like had to be amazing outside, full of all kinds of plants and and diversity. (laughs) The the world is just popping with green. It's amazing. There's food everywhere, growing all over the place. He's got all these seeds around there, and they were so excited. It's like, can you believe it? Look, we've got enough seeds. We can produce everything. It's like, well, why aren't you? It's like, what? 
It's like, well, uh, well, do you know how to put a seed in the ground? Uh, uh, what is yeah, that? These are watermelons. These are pumpkins. These are radishes. These and this, you know, you should have started as soon as you had uh, like growing temperatures, which for radishes would be like January. Yeah. And by now you're eating like a king and you're selling all this produce because you have all this. We can survive anything. It's like, well, why aren't you? You've got these two huh. $40,000 empty greenhouses. You've got all the seed. You've got thousands of dollars worth of seed all lying around the living room floor because he wants to sit in and sit on his computer and read about all this stuff um, about how cool and fantastic he is. It's amazing. We're going to survive everything. It's like, no, you're not. They haven't even executed on anything. They're they're preparing knowledge and even materials, but they actually haven't put anything around. And then, you know, well, he actually did, he did a, he did a, did a design. The kid did a design. Now, I'm a trained permaculturist. There's this guy, what's his name? Bill, Bill, some Australian fellow, Mala, Mala, mm. yeah, Bill Mollison. Mm. He signed my diploma, okay? Wow. I kind of think the guy might know a little something. He about invented it. the word okay. with David Holmgren. You know, there's other people carrying on the work and all that kind of stuff. So this kid went to a design course and he learned how to make a mud oven, which there was a mud oven in front of the garage right on the driveway because that was the easiest place to put it because it was flat and firm. They made a mud mm-hmm. oven, Makes sense. which is cool because you're going to feed the world that way. How much rain did they get? Oh, 60 plus inches a year. Oh, it's, it's totally it's, fine outside yeah. unprotected, isn't it? It's incredible. <laughs> don't they, don't perma- I'm a recovering permaculturist, but don't they call that like a type one error? Well, I'm actually a permaculturist, according to the way I was trained by the inventor of the terminology. Okay. And permaculture, when a word was first came up, by this guy called Bill Mollison, mm. was permanent agriculture. agriculture. And you know what? It's kind of morphed and changed since then because this is a community effort and it changes through time. And I understand, you know, if you've got like, let's take churches, for example, there's the orthodoxy and then there's the evangelicals. It's radically different. It's not the same. Things are going to change through time. But for crying out loud, let's focus on growing some food. Let's focus on growing some food in permanent systems because until we're feeding ourselves, we we aren't in a situation where we can help others. No. And so, all right, let's set up a system where we're feeding ourselves, and let's go on from there. Right. The situation I find myself in is now I go out helping others to set up a permanent system that feeds yourself. My systems feed me. Fed a family, fledged everybody. They See? You know, flew away. And, and it, it'll, it'll feed people for eons. We're not even harvesting maybe 20% of the potential at the most of that property. And, and, it, and it's there. It's going to take nuclear weapons or bulldozers to get rid of this food-producing system. So people are like, oh, let's make a food forest, a little 10 by 10 patch with a couple of trees and berry bushes and stuff like that. Visual no, progress we need, feels we, good. We need to, and it does, it's important, because we need to start where we are. Everybody needs to start where we are with our understanding and take that first step. Once we take that first step, we then need to go the next step and the next step. And with permanent agriculture... We've got to feed ourselves. And, and one of the things for the third ethic that so many permies argue and fight about, one of the things that Mollison said is like, well, once you got your needs taken care of, you're feeding yourself. you got yourself sheltered. You have all of the heating supplies and cooking you know, uh, fuels that you need. Now you can help others. So he doesn't say 
take a training class, draw a pretty picture, then teach others to take a training class and draw a pretty picture, to teach others to take a training class and draw a pretty picture, because that doesn't actually do anything. He said, take the training class, draw this pretty picture, set your system up, feed yourself, generate a surplus, help others. How can you help others if you haven't even learned how to feed yourself? I don't know. Is it? I'm, I'm young. I was born in '82. I guess I'm in this millennial range. It seems like what most <clears throat> experts my age do is we get on YouTube, we watch videos, we pay thousand dollars for Australian PDCs that aren't worth the paper to wipe your ass with. And it's a lot of toilet paper. Thousand bucks? I can. Oh, buy, it's a lot. Go to Costco. A, I got a DVD collection to go along with it. So there's Good. that. <laughs> Uh, but it seems actually, like, what you use the DVDs for? What is you drill a little teeny tiny hole in it, take a fishing swivel and a little fishing uh-huh. line, hang it from a and branch, and it, and it flickers back and forth, and it'll keep like ground squirrels and birds away from your fruit. It's a good reflector to you know chase scare, scare them. Folks my age are, I can only speak with my experience in life, and I'm curious on your uh, if, because you're so versed in reading a landscape, reading people, observing patterns, pattern recognition, all the things that you've learned in permaculture, but more importantly, incorporate in your everyday life and business, personal, at home, the whole nine. It seems like folks my age are they're, they're, they, they're led or they're gravitated to trying to do better, to trying to take the next step, to trying to find ways to live with nature, to make this whole thing a little bit better than when we found it. But they have a failure to launch. They're afraid. They don't want to take risks. They have to do things perfectly because what, I, what we can't do is take pictures of our perfect hoop house and post it on Instagram and Facebook unless it looks absolutely perfect. perfect. Like we can't <clears throat> visibly fail. Like we, we can't actually show that we're learning uh, as we're going through this whole entire journey or process. We have to look perfect to everybody. There's so <laughs> well, many. Guess what? You failed, buddy. We failed, didn't we? <laughs> you did for sure. Of course. <laughs> I don't understand why it, 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 is this is this it would be too greedy and egotistical to think that oh this is some just uh, new societal phase we're going through. It seems like we're we're in cycles where human nature is these patterns are going back and forth back and and we're are we at I consider where we're at right now is kind of like another back to the land movement. Folks, for whatever reason, are drawn toward the universe is pulling the mass towards this or whatever that it might be, and we're just making bad choices to try to get back to work with nature, leave it a better place. Back in the 60s and 70s, at that point, you're probably what running around Alaska homesteading, oh, uh, was, just just getting I was only ready. Born in the 60s, I was just a little okay. kid. So when that first hippie back to okay. movement happened, yeah. what do you what do you remember uh, <clears throat> of that? What do you, are you, folks? Nowadays, they'll go. They'll go on an online workshop. They maybe go if they're if they're even brave enough to go physically in front of people face to face and go to a workshop where you have to sit next to people and smell them and even like break bread with them and, and eat with like actually uh, integrate and communicate face to face. Some folks actually take that step, uh, but then they stop. They're afraid. They don't. They don't. Don't know what to do next. And then we're left almost in the same spot you were before you started. So you were a youngster then, but do you remember or have any recollection or what was it like then? Because it seems like what was the, the back to the land movement like then versus what it is now? Are there any similarities to draw? And more importantly, can we learn anything from how that turned out? Because it seems like what came out of that was it it seemed to be lost in time because here we are trying to figure out what it all means again. Part of what came out of it 
is a $40 billion organic industry. Green industry. That's part of where it all came from. And all of the renewable energies, mm. that's where all that came from, was all that, the whole hippie back to land movement. Because uh, it, same same situation, uh, you know, parallel, whatever, is back then there were the people who actually went out and did stuff. Yeah. And then there were the people who just wanted to hang around a groovy little crash pad with others and, you know, get up at the crack of noon and, you know, twist up some, you know, turf grass and yeah. do whatever until like four in the afternoon and so there there are the, were those people then there are those people now that the guy I was talking about with all the seeds all around and then there were other people that just innovated and picked stuff up and and created new things so I, I don't know really what was the difference that motivated them to to do things versus not do things <clears throat> and uh, so it was probably eight ish when my dad uh so my dad had a pretty unique situation he grew up son of a uh hunting fishing guide in northeastern maine and Um. the owner of the property was a doctor and the doctor back then in the 30s doctors are all botanists Mm -hmm. your growing medicines came from plants well the doctor uh goes up 50 miles up to the road to vanceboro maine where there was this community um of Anthroposophists that this this guy um, ha, Roger was his first name I don't remember the last name at the point in time uh, he and his wife Miriam went over to Europe because they had a son who was forceps delivered that when he was age three just short circuited and became a total problem hmm. they were uh, wealthy you know industrial heirs and heiresses from New York City they had all the resources they went everywhere and somebody kind of went huh, well you can go to the Steiner place in Switzerland and see what that's like like well what do we got to lose we got we have a special needs kid and we're going to do everything for this kid because yeah. we love him yeah. so they took him they all by freighter back then you take a steamer across wow. the way <clears throat> they drive up to the headquarters in switzerland wherever it was they're going to go to the original camp hill village which is a steiner inspired uh community therapy uh situation residential situation for adults with steiner. special needs rudolph steiner. i'm picking up what you put yeah. okay yeah so okay so these people went over there and then uh, it, when they pulled up, they opened up the car door, and the house mother of the house that they're going to see, they're going to interview to see if the kid was a good fit, if it'll work for them. And when uh, they were pulling up the driveway, you know, they write about it in the, in the story they, they told about this, the kid got up at the window and started giggling for the first time in like a year and a half or whatever. And they open up the door, and he runs out the door and jumps into the arms of this lady. And the husband and wife, Miriam and Ron, kind of look at each other it's like well this is where he's going to stay this is where he he needs this so the next ship doesn't go back for another month or whatever so they spend time in switzerland they got to meet rudolf steiner briefly and they were escorted around the whole all the different things Mm -hmm. that were going on by this guy ernfried pfeiffer who was Steiner's understudy. Mm. <clears throat> well, Ernfried Pfeiffer was big into doing research on organic agriculture, and the whole biodynamic agriculture that came out of the Steiner movement was the first, you know, quote-unquote, certified organic production methods on a planet, period, with this codified system of how you do things. And so he was talking with Roger and Miriam, and like, you know, the politics are getting kind of weird. It's the 30s. 
Uh, we're really from Germany. We're kind of hanging out in Switzerland because it's a little bit of a better political deal. Um, you know, we're thinking, let's go to the USA. It's a little bit more free. And they're like, well, you know what? We need this over in the USA. Well, Miriam was a performing artist, violin and dance and all that kind of stuff. So she really latched on to the whole Eurythmy thing that mm-hmm. was also a Steiner-inspired mm-hmm. movement, uh, movement therapy kind of whatever. So as they the went... 30s. This right? is in the 30s. Yeah. So as they go back to the States, um, it was actually, I think, the 20s when they first went over there, because I think Steiner was still alive. So it would have been the 20s. But anyways, I don't, I don't remember the dates. I'm trying to tell you the I'm, connection I'm, I'm of where thinking, my dad came from. I'm, I'm thinking in, in, in cycles. 20s. Like yeah, 20s, and now it's coming into the 30s. Uh-huh. So, so what happens is they make the decision. It's like, let's bring Pfeiffer over here. Let's buy, uh, because they had all the money in the world, let's buy this huge track of of natural resources property that has timber and and water for water mills a little run downtown and we can set up the little company town and we run this company town for the family business and revenues go through the family business and miriam can do all of her art stuff and all of her theater stuff and you know you know me the guy I, i can manage this whole thing and manage all the different natural resources stuff that's going on around it um so vanceboro maine where uh, the whole anthroposophical biodynamic movement first came to the USA it was 50 mm. miles up the road from where my dad lived. Mm. So then the doctor who was their benefactor that owned the lodge, my 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 grandpa was just the the guide, and that's where my dad you know grew up his first forming years. When the depression came along, things were bad, and they really kind of you know you don't have a lot of sportsmen going out hunting in a seriously remote because this was mm. like seriously Way remote up. wilderness yeah. at, at that point in time but then world war ii finally did come along mm. if you were a german accent person oh yes during world war ii yeah, you were a spy so yeah. there's all kinds of vandalism that started to happen the company really wasn't making a lot of money there was a lot of theft and eventually somebody one night in the middle of the winter time burnt the place to the ground Ugh. and you know back the the pump uh, started going the engine stalls on the pump they go to fire it up and by the time they get it fired up again, the line had froze, the hose breaks, and the whole their whole thing that they built kind of fell apart, and they moved back to New York City. But the the doctor that ran my, my grandpa's lodge, <clears throat> when World War II finally came along and they lost most of their clients to, to death in the war, yeah. uh, he took them down to Massachusetts where my grandpa could work in the factories where he died of, of chemically-induced cancers from mm. working in a factory with no protections. Um, he had my dad um, work his garden because even then, yes, chemicals were starting to come into use, but as the doctor, he's like, you grow these herbs and these herbs and these herbs. Now he's doing it biodynamically. So my dad was already a gardener and a compost maker Hmm. back when, uh, you know, before really people were really doing it at all. And it was all Steiner-inspired. Well, then, uh, once the whole World War II thing ends, Mm. now you're doing compost, and if you're doing compost and you've got these German-speaking people, you're a communist. So if you said compost, you're a communist. So you can't do that. You can be really quiet. So the whole biodynamic movement went underground. So some of my earliest memories, I was, you know, probably five or six, is we would go to a so that would have been 1965-ish or so. 
you know, wow. Vietnam is going on. So I was six. So I would have been four in, in '65. So '66, I would have been six years old. Um, no, it's four. That's math. It's like full on back to the land. The, all the, the so then all of a sudden, that. that's when it all gets started because all these hippie resistor people are now going back to the land. Is a, how do we grow food? Well, we've heard about this stuff called compost. Huh. Well, my dad knew how to make compost. So here's my dad, a blue collar, working class. Um, maintenance worker and a model maker and a, and a fixture maker in a, in a plastic shop. Who he's knows? a food now, all of a sudden a food hero. Well, now he's a somewhat of a you know local food hero because he keeps bees and he's growing this garden. We were part of the uh, local biodynamic group which coincidentally was run by the president of the association at the time, John Philbrick and his mm. wife, Helen Philbrick, in Duxbury, Massachusetts. So what was really fascinating is in my childhood, people would show up, all the, all the long hairs would show up, and you know, quite frankly, as a like little eight-year-old kid in the 60s, as one of the biggest things that the, that whole Back to the Lander movement did is it blew apart all these social norms that you know today's big thing is a whole LGBTQ, NFOP, whatever yeah. else we're going to add on top of that um, that never would have been possible without these people taking their clothes off never and walking around in, down streets you know getting arrested just for you know ladies walking with no shirt right um, and so that was that was a big deal coming out of the beaver cleaver era to like right. you know, guys wearing long hair you can't tell if it's a guy or a girl kind of thing that's a huge controversy so all these long hairs would would come to our our place and learn how to make compost. We'd go to these other places. Well, at at the Philbrick's place in Duxbury, Massachusetts, um, that was like more of an epicenter. Some of the people that showed up, one of the guys, he was actually nice to kids, which I thought was really cool. One of the hippie guys <coughs> was this guy called Rob Johnston. And Rob Johnston was passionate about seed, just really into seed, and he wanted to he wanted to grow these vegetable seeds and make improved vegetable varieties that thrive in uh, organic systems, and that was his passion. And, and he eventually started a small little seed company up in Albion, Maine. So Johnston, Johnny, what's his name? What's the seed company? Oh, so yeah, uh, he started sounds, that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there was uh, another another guy who was one of one of my my dad's best friends with Samuel Kamen. Samuel Kamen was this little short guy. I think he was Armenian descent. And, you know, back in the 70s, if you got, like, this Middle Eastern color and you're kind of like one of those, it didn't really work all that well in the social scene. Um, So he had to be a little bit of a, you know, stick your, dig your heels in and square your shoulders. And so he had a small little farm up in New Hampshire, and he grew, when when I knew him, he grew cucumbers. And he also ran a raw milk distribution racket. Uh, <laughs> our, and he wasn't our, Amish. No, he Imagine wasn't. No. Uh, our family also, we participated in this. Um, it, it was a buying club, and uh, it was a, a bag scheme. This was before there were like you know computers and email lists and all this kind of whatever. And it was a telephone tree. And so all of a sudden, um, the phone would ring, and you answer it, Hey, this is so-and-so. And they're the person above you on the phone tree. And it's like, and... Uh, somebody went to North Dakota and got 500 pounds of organic wheat and organic buckwheat. And they've got a connection in South Dakota that's coming from California with this. Do you want any? Well, then down the phone tree, if you said yes, 
you're now responsible to be the distributor for the people below you on that. <clears throat> and so we'd all have our bags. And so we would go to um, Owen's place, and Owen would bag up whatever it was. And then we call the people down our phone tree, and they come to us and pick up you know their things that come in our place. And um, there was, uh, I don't even know if it's in existence anymore. I don't really pay attention to trends and stuff like that. But that eventually became a company called Airwan, Airwan mm. Foods. It was a food distribution company. Um, so then Samuel, um, in addition to selling cucumbers, and I was going across this field. It's like this big. I'm doing a, a We're 70s now. We're in the 70s. This is now by the 70s, yeah. <clears throat> Oil embargo was on. You know, my dad put solar panels for heating water on the house. We heated with wood. Got a Volkswagen Square back to get better mileage. He did like a whole bunch of things that were really is cool. It, are things gaining traction over that last ten years? Are they starting to do? What 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 was the what was the overall feeling of of uh, living life and. Uh, <clears throat> I thought that, context I thought that that was the trend of the future. I figured that everybody saw you the it was, sense. You thought it was catching steam. In I context. thought this is this is making sense all across the board. So many different ways: renewable energy, and you know, and what happened? And uh, well, the people who didn't do shit didn't do shit and the people who did stuff did in order to keep doing what they did they turned them into companies that are now very profitable companies so part of what Samuel did in addition to selling his cucumbers and this hillside that I would take these out in the mud cucumbers in a wheelbarrow slogging through the mud and it's like if if you've ever been to New England states New Hampshire it's like soil are are grapefruit sized rocks 18 inches down and there's bedrock that's a good nice friable soil in New Hampshire. And so, tree will grow so we went across these stony fields picking all of his cucumbers and stuff like that. Well, one of the things that Samuel did, besides having seven of the most gorgeous daughters he ever could imagine, <laughs> um, he, with his raw milk scheme, he also made yogurt behind the wood stove in coolers. He did it individual quart jars at a time. So you do whatever, you know, you heat it, you pasteurize it, you add your culture to it, you get the culture going. Then you put it in individual quart jars instead of doing it in an industrial tub Mm -hmm. that you then blended and squirted into a quart uh, container. You would... would put it in the quart container where it would finish well one of the things when you put it into that individual quart container before it's finished is the cream layer would float to the top and make this layer of cream across the top and everything had cream and then my dad uh, was like well hey you know samuel these jars are really heavy he's like oh yeah transports a you know pain in the ass it's like well i work at this plastic shop and here's all these little one quart plastic containers (laughs) that if they fall out of the machine they can't sell them to whoever they do or if they have a flaw here and there and I got I got tens of thousands of these dumpster dived plastic containers, one quart plastic containers. Why don't I just bring you up and you try those for a while and see how they work? So Samuel started making yogurt in one quart plastic containers, um, and then after he, his sales got up to a certain level, he just started buying direct from the company and, and buying new yeah. virgin containers and got licensed and all that kind of stuff. So I dropped a couple of clues. There's this stony field in the side of, of the hill in New Hampshire. And you kid, I know, you're kidding me. So, stony field yogurt. Yeah, so Samuel started stony field yogurt. Rob Johnston started you know, Johnny's Selected Seed. Erwan was all part of that whole thing. And then there was this, um, this these, these two buddies that first came at first. 
Um, uh, ben Cohen was one of them. And uh, the other guy only came a couple different times. He wasn't into the, into the ag part of it. And they knew Samuel, and they were kind of you know friends and relations because they were both into the milk thing. And they started some kind of ice cream company up in Vermont. I don't know. You know, Ben and his buddy, what was his buddy's name? So, the Fish Food, so, Cherry Garcia, those yeah, guys? Yeah. yeah. So, so what happened was there's this huge industry now called an industry in quotes that the people who actually did stuff became the players. Mm-hmm. And they're now all retirement age or past retirement age. Uh, and, and they've turned over the companies to their successors and all that kind of stuff. And what, what's interesting, how this kind of loops around, yeah. is at the same time period in the Midwest, <clears throat> oh, there's this other guy that we didn't get along. We were like, we were like two North Poles of a magnet where we like sparks and water. And it was just like <laughs> this guy had issues. And he was somewhat short, and he was very right all the time. He knew what he was talking about. And me as this little kid, you don't talk up to me, blah, 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 blah. And, and, and as the years went by, and I kept going, my dad kept bringing me, he kind of softened a little bit. It's like, well, I kind of deal with you. And now he's like one of these guys that I've known longer than almost anybody else in the world. He actually was, uh, he got land from Helen... Not Helen, Scott and Hel- yeah, Scott Helen Nearing in Maine at Harborside, Maine. And he started with like a, this piece of cut over woods, kind of did the clearing thing, started to build the soil with all this compost. And so he was a Nearingite and started selling vegetables, um, direct market vegetables into Bar Harbor, Maine. And he was a super creative. He could think of an idea of how to grow small scale vegetable this. So he came up with an idea and he knew this guy, Rob Johnston, from what? Right down the road in Albion, Maine. Hey, Rob, I got this cool little invention I came up with for planting seeds really nifty. Check it out. Here it is. No patents involved. Hey, you over here. You want to make one of these? So he kept coming up with these ideas for new innovative products. <coughs> one of his biggest innovations was making these hoop houses on on uh, wooden rails. Mm. And then you start out here in the field in the summertime while you're growing something over here that needs extra heat, which on the coast of Maine, it doesn't really get all that warm when it's yeah. foggy and 50 degrees until 3 in the afternoon. Yeah. So the hoops were very significant there. Well, so you grow the warm, loving crop here while you get the cool season crop started in, in you know mid-summer, late summer here. Well, then as the weather turns colder, you pull the hoop house, slide it on the rails over here. Now it's over your winter crop, and now you can grow uh, some sort of vegetable crop in there, some salad crop all winter long. So he had this four-season um, mm-hmm. harvest. So what the heck was his name? Elio, it was Elliot Coleman. Huh. And and it was just last fall. It was funny. Um, I go driving up, and we run into each other at conferences all along the way. Yeah. And, and you know, we've known each other forever. <laughs> we haven't been like best friends because we see each other what once, once a year, once every three yeah. years. So I go driving around the peninsula, go to go to Scott and Helen Nearing's homestead. It's like some kind of mecca trip for me. And then I drive over to his place, and there he is in the driveway with like five other people. And I pull in, 
And I pull in, he's like, who's this car pulling up right alongside me? And he looks in, he's got this little bit of an annoyed look because he was pontificating to his you know, small little drove of minions. And he sees me, he goes, hey, Mark, next time you see so-and-so, I want you to see A, B, C, D. When you're going to Washington, D.C. next, I want you to do this, this, this. And hey, cool, see you, Elliot, won't bother you, bye. And we took off. So, so it's like one of these guys we can drop together and bop, and it's like, ah, we have the... Uh, you know what 50 year history of knowing each other it's pretty cool so the difference it's not a difference it's a similarity the people who are actually doing things are the ones that are going to be making the real change and the people who are dreaming about it and thinking about it liking things because it's cool they're just like mongers um, that's nice. That's wonderful. The people are actually out there in the muck and the mire. What's the Teddy Roosevelt quote? <clears throat> Is the people who are making the real change are the ones who are, are, are mired by blood and mud and sweat, guts and grime, who are out there in the mix trying to figure it out and taking it on the chin and actually mm. accomplishing way above what they ever thought was possible. They're the ones that are making change. Is it completely <laughs> egotistical and self-serving to think that we can look at history we can look at where we're at. We can learn something from it. We can do something different that never happened before that we're somehow going to make things better. Because as you're telling me, and I'm, I'm trying to think, man, I'm trying to pick up on what he's putting down, whether he's trying to do it intentionally. But I'm reminded of a Proverbs where there's nothing new under the sun. So if we're looking back to even in our own history context, we're not even going back into ancient man or before any kind of cataclysm or collapse or anything. We're, we're going back just to you, you and I history. There's opportunities where there's, there's issues, whether it's socially, civilly, in the government. And out of springing up through that is people looking to make change. And when they're doing that, they're trying to get back to the land, uh, grow their own food, be more resilient, self-sufficient. And and in them doing that, there's education and learning opportunities. But then it seems like it peters off and it not really dies, but it disappears or goes underground until the next 40 or 50 years and it pops back up again. But what it's done is it's gone through an iterative cycle. Yes. And what I want to parallel that's really bizarre, you may not think I'm going to be doing this, it's two different parallel streams to what you'd exactly talked about and and it's a fractal pattern mm. uh but i'm going to go to evolutionary history and i just put quotes and fingers quotes. my fingers air quotes so evolutionary history then i'm going to talk about embryology a human embryology okay and then exactly what you talked in the whole session social economic wow. thing. okay what has happened uh according to the fossil record is that there's you know these life forms that are going on they come to dominate and this is the way life is on earth this is how it all works then all of a sudden this innovation appears and it appears strong in one thread for a while and then it disappears for a while but then something happens in the next iteration through then almost everybody has that particular characteristic and what i'm thinking of right there is if you look at the fossil record, you have all these, you know, single cell, multi cell, then you start to get, you know, these glomular things and jellyfishes, and then you start to get like octopuses, and oh, what? Octopus? And lo and behold, the, here comes these, these, uh, you know, cephalopods, they've got eyeballs. But then there's no appearance of eyeballs for a long period of time. It kind of disappears. It's not as popular. And boom, every organism's got eyeballs the next go around. Then if you look at human embryology, 
we start as these single cell organisms mm. in the womb. Mm. We turn into this, you know, clump of cells, a multicellular organism in the womb, surrounded by water. We're in the ocean. Then all of a sudden, that that ball of cells becomes a hollow thing of cells. Then it folds in. We're a jellyfish. Then it all of a sudden develops a notochord, and now we're an amphibian, and we got these gills coming out. Literally, we got gills coming out the side of the neck, and there's a little bit of an offshoot. I was prepping. I, I taught um, high school botany, zoology, um, uh, ecology, and genetics for five or six years for part-time for a while. And when I was prepping for class, I had my little you know, three-year-old sitting on the on the chair next to me <clears throat> and he said well, well wait dad when we were prepping for genetics you know last spring you were talking about you know uh, genes you know silencing genes and activating genes and stuff like that it's like well what if we learned of what the genes were that silence mm. the trait that had humans with gills and we go and we, we go ahead and we disable the the whatever the signal is that gets rid of the gills and the gills continue to develop. Now we have humans that are born with gills. We can live in the water. And that would be an evolutionary breakthrough. It's like a four-year-old. It's like, whoa. So you do this. So, okay, so then the gills are there. Then they go away. Then the notochord becomes a spine. And, you know, and this whole organism develops out of it. Every phase of development is a parallel of this evolutionary development as found in the fossil record, which you look at the social change that happened for a period of time, <clears throat> this is the way the world economy works, the way the societies are organized and structured, and there are those who try to change it. Those who are in power like things the way they are, because quite frankly, they're the ones who are benefiting from mm-hmm. it. Those who aren't really benefiting from it, the ones who actually want to take action, uh, they start to make changes. Well, they immediately get fought against. So maybe all these different other stages of development, it's like the status quo is pissed off. It's like, no, 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 no. We can't have eyeballs and organisms. And maybe all of nature and everything goes and tries to get rid of that trait, but then it pops up again and it's across the board. Maybe what happens in utero as we're you know going through this developmental phase, maybe there's something that's actually hmm. the current system is now toxically trying to eliminate the innovation for the next phase but it loses and the next phase comes out and there's these new innovations but if it wasn't for somebody trying to start a certified organic yogurt company (laughs) we wouldn't have the billion dollar Stonyfield yogurt today if it wasn't for now in the Midwest the parallel of this the whole Organic Valley crowd kind of was getting started at the same time they tried all these different things and they were friends the the now retiring you know hierarchy within the whole organic valley world out there was friends with the folks that I grew up as a little kid and so it was the same social and economic impulse that I ended up moving into in the Midwest. I didn't know it at the time. You know, I just walked into it by accident. It was just really cool that wow, these are not are accident at all. I suppose yeah, it may not have been an accident at all. Um, and so you look at the folks from Organic Valley, Dave Engel, Jim Wiederberg, um, George Seaman, uh, Ray Haas, and um, Peterson, Wayne Peters, to start this little company. And when they, when they, as members of the vegetable growing co-op, Organic Valley, 
when they it was actually called the Cooley Region Organic Produce Pool at the time. Mm. When when after a few years go by of this Cooley Region Organic Produce Pool, it wasn't really making it. Those guys said, "Hey, you know what? We milk cows too. What if we all take a leap of faith and risk absolutely everything and don't use our conventional milk buyer anymore?" We contract with somebody who's got a truck who'll haul our milk to this plant over here on a Monday morning when the plant is shut down, run our stuff through first. It's now certifiable organic cheese that they're going to make out of our milk, and we've got to run on Monday morning. Well, then we have somebody sitting at the sales desk selling cheese through the wintertime, potatoes and onions, maybe some squash till it runs out, and we're making sales calls every day of the week to somebody. Then the summer comes through, all the produce goes, it'll be a way to keep the whole produce program alive, it'll work, it'll be successful. Well, the rest is history, because dairy sells. People drink a lot of milk, they eat a lot of cheese. Uh, If you look at the catalog of organic products, Pallet Valley products, it's like half inch thick almost. It's just a lot of stuff that they make now. So when I joined the Organic Valley Co-op, there were, I was growing number 24. <coughs> There's now 2,400 members. We own the company. We own a piece of the trucking company. Um, the economic power that these guys back in the 60s actually went out and did something. And they did it, and they they took a personal risk. Those first six, first six dairy farmers called their milk company, their milk buyer, and they said, "We're not going to sell to you anymore." If that if Organic Valley failed, would they be able to get onto a milk truck again somewhere? Mm. No, nah, the dirt is out. These guys, they're 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 turncoat and trying to compete against us right. in the marketplace. Screw them! Don't ever buy any milk from them again. They were out of business. So they took a risk. So the innovators nowadays in this, you know, what you kind of termed another back-to-the-land kind of cycle, it's different because eyes that showed up in octopuses once or twice and had to fight against the status quo that's fighting against them now is going to come up as this given. Everything from the cell phone Mm. and the credit card with a a chip instant communication uh, which gives us instant access to political power if we stick together and organize with that around our own personal agenda as a interest group Um, it's going to be different but it's only going to be different if the people who are motivated to do this actually do something it click seems like, and like click and like ain't gonna cut it. Like and share isn't, isn't, isn't doing anything, is it? No. Well, yeah, other people it, are hearing it, about it. There, there, then you start you talking about, to yourself. There's something to be said about yeah. awareness. Yeah. No matter whether it was picketing signs, whatever movement you're talking about, it seems like what you're talking about is there. <clears> there might be uh, context specific complexities in oh. our time right now. What you're talking about, but. If you're the embryo and you're reading signals, gills, no gills, eyes, no eyes, like we only know what is that. But how complex that was, that was probably a, a bazillion <clears throat> times more complex than what maybe what, what we pretend all of this is. We're sitting in front of electronics and USB and microphones and electric and 110 and AC. Like, that's complicated. 
but it, it almost seems as though there's, there is nothing <clears throat> new under the sun. And it's, it's a, maybe a, a newly understood set of contexts or a situation. But what it seems like is no matter if we're going back to ancient man before any kind of a history of flood on earth or a bazillion years before that, <clears throat> there are those that do nothing and there are those that do something. And it seems as though the folks that do something in some way propel or connect into whatever parallel to here we are sitting 50 years later or 5,000 years later where because they did something either traits are expressed or something is expressed or there's something understood now to where there's somebody that says I'm going to go to a Mark Shepard workshop to learn about uh, key line and ridge ponds and flat and, and hazelnuts and chestnuts and how I can grow fuel fiber and food and on and on and on and on all these amazing things what if the universe is just using Mark Shepard and that message to propel folks that are actually doing something because who knows what's going to happen in the next 50 years yeah. or 500 years or 1,000 years? Yeah, if that's, how it's, if that's what's happening, so be it. And, and if, and that's if, amazing if, to even if, think about if that. If you go ahead and you put me into like that same, these different lines of this, you know, uh, the way things are, this innovation, iteration, it comes right. up different next time. Well, let's kind of put me in that category because yeah. here's this whole, I was like the tail end. <clears throat> um, the last one, yeah. The tail end yeah. of the Generation X thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of just the front of this and nobody knows where I exactly go into that particular generation. I was either the cutoff after or the cutoff before. And so everything I thought was really cool, the hippies already kind of did and made it illegal. <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, so so then when I go do this back to the land thing, because this is right, it's good, uh, I did it with my ecological understanding and my training because I was like, he's totally into a, being a student of nature. This is this is the ultimate model. And just, you know, the, the Fagacy family yeah. alone, which is Oaks, Chestnuts, and Beasts Beach, has been around here for 90 million years. And in 90 million years, there's been quite a few global warmings totally. and ice ages between then. I think like 26, 29 different ice ages. We have all the genetic tools to do this. And in those 90 million years, you know what? It's only in the last, what, 70 or 80 years <clears throat> that any species thought that you needed to have fossil fuels and machinery and equipment to get these right. plants to grow. So these these plant community types have a millions of years worth of history or 6,000 years. It doesn't matter. That's a long period of time. They know how to deal with all these different changes is in their genetics. What's the chestnut <clears throat> in, on that mountain in Italy? It's um, uh, El Castaño de Cento Cavalli, 4,000 years it's old. It's seen more things and forgotten more things yeah. than we'll ever know about any of that, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and it keeps putting out chestnuts every single year. Thank you very much. Here you go. Over and over and over. And so when I went out and did it, instead of thinking that we have to make all these tools, have all this tech, mm. do all whatever, I'm going to imitate natural ecosystems mm. and manage it that way, which is totally wrong. If you go to any of the different crops that I grow, let's go chestnuts, hazelnuts, apples, pine nuts, and then you look at the state of the science of how it's grown, the state of horticulture, how it's grown, I don't follow the rules of what horticulture 
tells us we have to do in order to have it be financially viable. What I do is I look at the ditch on the side of the road. It's like, whoa, how is it that that hickory tree is growing right next to an apple tree and we're told that the juglones and the hickories and the walnuts are going to kill apples. Well, then underneath, we've got hazelnuts and raspberries and grapes. And in the shade, we got, you know, uh, gooseberries. And there's mushrooms decaying all of this. And there's grass on the outside fringe. Grapes crawling all over the whole mess. clovers and bees and butterflies and on and on and on. And who spent any money planting that ditch on the side of the road? So I'm going I'm to follow those rules right there because they're producing food, fuels, medicines, and fibers with no fossil fuel inputs, with no real human care because on the ditch of the side of the road, the best that we do is we abuse it and hit it with road salt and snow plows and brush hogs and all that kind of stuff, and it keeps coming back. And maybe that's, that's exactly why every cycle is <clears throat> drawn right back to nature. Because it wins. It'll be here when we leave. Over and over again. So so if you go back to this whole innovation and iteration, if you can imagine how, I'll put interesting in air quotes again, how interesting it has been to be this guy out there doing this stuff with perennials that are growing staple food crops, permanent agriculture, mm. and then to sell them, instead of selling them into niche markets for high value, the intention is to sell them into the bulk commodity markets as food, as staple foods at the low price per pound. What does this guy think? He's insane. Totally, absolutely insane. But somehow, I've been able to survive for as long as I have, feed myself and my family, fledge the whole lot of them, and and it has paid for itself all along the way. No government subsidies, period, ever. Uh, 2008, I think it was, when fuel prices really spiked big time. And so I just didn't really use the tractor, and I went on a vacation. I came back, the farm was better. So if I go ahead and I die or I leave or whatever, um, it's going to be producing more food for two, three, four, five, seven thousand years. Um, there's not a lot of like, oh, let's go and zillions of people doing this on zillions of acres everywhere because I'm not out there selling you on the fact that you can make two and a half million dollars on a quarter acre. <laughs> Spin this, man. You can crush it. It's like, no, 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 oh, no, yeah. no, 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 no. We're going to produce food, fuels, medicine, fibers, be lazy bastards. We're going to get half the yields and it's all cool, man. It's all right. So, so what's going to come out of what I've done are people like you who've learned from me. Now you personalize it and you add to it anything else you've learned from somewhere else. And you come up with something that works on the ground for you and your family, your financial situations, your social situation, and you make it work for you. And it's going to be different from what I did. And you know what? That's quite all right. And so-and-so is, and so-and-so yeah. is, and so-and-so is. And in fact, every single piece of land from here to, to eternity is different. Is. There is no freaking cookie Diversity. cutter. There is no cookie cutter that no. we're going to put on, oh, just do this. It's simple. It's one of the things that frustrates me most about key line. Oh, it's simple. You do this. Key point. Key line. Parallel down in the primary valley. A ridge reference. Contour line at the lowest practical point of the ridge. You go parallel up and everything works fine. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. I've done that for 25 years and there have been two properties where a ridge form actually complied, but never have I found a landform 
with a key line cultivation pra- uh, pattern as written in P.A. Yeoman's Water for Every Farm and any other book written about key line design, never have I found a property that follows that geometry. And if somebody can find me one of those and get me a topographical map of it, I would love to include it in a book and do an analysis on it. So we have to, no matter where we go, we're going to take this model, this pattern, this form, and adapt it specifically to our site. We'll specifically adapt the local plant community types here in western Ohio to this particular site. We'll adapt our interaction with the landscape based on the shape of this land, you know, all the water, the soils, the social context, all of that. Southern Illinois is going to be different than New York State. We've got people from Maryland. We've got people from Missouri. Everybody's going to have a specifically different version of what it is to imitate a natural plant community type. Manage your water resource to optimize the hydration of your site and your soils. uh, And then live within a perennial ecosystem. Feed yourself and your family. Then have a surplus to pool with your neighbor and the next door neighbor until you have enough to get on a truck or a train or a Amazon, you know, programmed bot drone to fly it to market for you. And so, and so that, that's like the Organic Valley model is me growing a quarter acre zucchini. I can sell it at farmer's market. If I go to farmer's market with zucchini in a region that grows zucchini in July through middle of September, everybody who comes to farmer's market, they're not out shopping for a zucchini. They're out to have a social time and yeah. buy a birdhouse or whatever it is and maybe buy some little food just because they're at farmer's market. They're not there doing their grocery shopping. They go to Walmart and Costco and they're just pulling stuff off the shelves. That's the real market. So Organic Valley says, okay, if we go to farmer's market, all of us experience the reality that we can't sell all of our zucchini. But the real problem isn't the fact that you've got too much zucchini and she's got too much zucchini and he's got too much zucchini and nobody's buying zucchini. That's not the real problem. The problem is is that we don't have enough zucchini to put it on a truck to send it to Chicago, New York, and L.A. and Texas where there's millions of people that can't grow zucchini uh, because they only have a doorstep. And, and maybe they got a pot with a zucchini and a tomato plant in it. You can't feed yourself on that small piece of ground. Currently, right now, was I think it's like almost 70% of the human race lives in cities. Wow. And you can turn every square inch of New York City green, and it won't produce enough calories to feed the people there. There's no way. We need farms to grow the bulk carbohydrates, proteins, and oils. We aggregate those products, which is how the big market works. All the, you know, the bread and the pasta and the meat that you get was grown by smaller growers, pretty large smaller growers, aggregated, combined from a bunch of different sources, processed at scale, then uh, distributed for sale at scale. And so we can do the same thing, but be small, small holding landowners. You can have 5, 10, 15, 20 acres, and you participate in a co-op or a C-corp, whatever this aggregation company is, that takes your honey, your maple syrup, your hazelnuts, your apples, your pine nuts, <clears throat> you know, your, your yeah. different beef. Oh, but there's there's no USDA slaughterhouse to send our certified <laughs> grass-fed pork to. Well, you know what? We're going to build it. We don't, I don't have enough money, and I'm only running four hogs. Well, guess what? We're going to run 120 hogs a day, 367 days out of the year through a USDA-sponsored facility, and we own a piece of it. Because if you chip in, and you chip in, and you chip in, and you chip in, now we have scale. 
we have to plan, we have to cooperate, we have all the technology to be able to instantly communicate. And we set out, you know, back when I was you know, really involved in the whole uh, produce part of the ag- uh, of Organic Valley on the on the aggregation and distribution thing, we did it all in Excel spreadsheets. You get all these different spreadsheets that you're responsible for this week, this week, this week, and you promise these many quantities. And so if I've got to deliver 100 cases a week, I make sure I grow enough zucchini I'm going to deliver 100 cases a week. 100 cases a week on a pallet of zucchinis is one pallet of zucchinis. <clears throat> one pallet of zucchinis, that's nice. That's not a business. You can send it to Chicago. Cool, then you're out of business. Well, we need to ship them zucchinis every minute of the zucchini season, all these different you know all the different um, stores and, and distributors where we're going to. So with the with the computers and the cell phone, you can go like this. You take a picture. You got quality assurance going out the door. When they receive it, they better send a picture and send it back to you. You look. They're not going to reject you out of hand and you have no recourse for it because we've got verification with our phones. The technology that we have right now, we can have a, a massively interconnected uh, food distribution system without really changing anything other than our own behavior. How about that? I have to talk to you. I have to talk to her and him and them. We have to work together, pool our product that we now, because we're different, we're doing a restoration agriculture model. We're growing them in ecological systems that are mm-hmm. based on a natural plant community type. Right. And the oak savanna we already talked about. Yeah. Our oak, our apples, our cherries, our hazelnut, our plums, our, our currants and gooseberries, our raspberries, our grapes, our grass, and our livestock. Livestock meaning cattle, pork, and chickens. We don't have to come up with crazy new products with new markets you know, there's, there's, uh, uh, vegetarian and veganism is increasing very rapidly. It's one of the yeah. hottest growing sectors out there. You know what? People are still going to eat beef and still going to eat pork. They will. And does a pig really care if I feed it corn and soybeans? You know, GMO, BT, corn, and Roundup Ready soybeans, do they really care if they eat that or if they eat acorns that fell off the tree or apples that had worms in them that fell off your trees or the discarded hazelnuts after you you know, husked them and sorted them and sized them that actually went through the machinery? Do they really care? No, not really. And so uh, many of the systems that we're designing using these various woody crops, we can avoid all of the fear of market. Oh, we'll saturate the market. Eh, not mm-hmm. likely anytime soon. We're just going to go put it into a different market. And we're going to sell all these different woody crops as livestock feed. Oh, you can't do that because the price per pound is so pathetically low. It's like, well, but we're producing it at a pathetically low price per pound because we remember that natural plant community type here in you know western uh, Ohio. Nobody is spending a penny managing these woods around here. And if that woods was designed as a plant community mimicked food woods like it would have been thousands of years ago for whoever whoever was here there's all this food out there it may yield less per acre than a you know high intensity apple orchard or cherry grove or whatever but we got no cost put into it other than harvesting it and getting to market and if how we're harvesting it is with pigs and then you put the pigs, you feed the <laughs> you feed the pigs once a day on a trailer, just snacks to kind of keep them, you know, coming mm-hmm. to you. Uh, then at the end of the season, you just walk around the trailer. They go on the trailer truck to go to the slaughterhouse, and you know they're all oh, like, "Where's Dad taking us today?" Um, it's just a lot more humane. One it's bad a lot more day easy. and the cycle continues. 
Well, maybe one bad moment. I don't know. Not even a day. Yeah. If there's anything I've learned from you, Mark, uh, from following you <clears throat> the last five, six years, putting what I've learned from you into action, you, you've helped me and my family build not only a framework uh, to uh, put a system together that is in nature's image. We were sitting at a workshop uh, that you did with Greg Judy in Missouri, and my son Jake brought his money and wanted to buy a stack of bumper stickers from you. <laughs> and he did. And you hand the bumper stickers <clears throat> sitting on the table. I've got more available, by the way. I'll send them home. Okay. Someday. I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to figure out where does my family and this farm thing that we want to start, where does it fit in? And what what's the thing? There's something that I, that I don't have that I'm missing that I don't understand that I feel like is, is the thing. And here's a pile of bumper stickers. And it says... Restoration agriculture, farming, and nature's image. Everything has exploded mentally. Our farm is nature's image farm. Ta da! It seems like no matter how far we go back in time, we always go back to nature. We're always trying to go back and get in tune, get in touch, mimic what we see. Whether it's the people here at, on the farm, where we're sitting here, the sun's going down, there is a, a slew of diversity of people, of farm products, of ideas, contexts, goals, situations, surrounded by soy, corn, forestry, pigs, chickens. It seems like one of the biggest things that I'm learning from you, whether it regards to farm finances, enterprises, people, the products themselves, is diversity. And it's just looking at nature. And that's incredible. And, and this is just day one. You know what the big deal, the big difference was, though, in your situation? You actually took that and you went, oh, wow. Instead of going, oh, cool. And you go back to work, back to work on Monday selling shoes at, at Malward or wherever you go. <laughs> you know, you went, oh, oh I'm going to do something. Yeah. I'm going to do I have no idea what I'm doing, but I got this pattern. What is the pattern? It's the master pattern. This whole entire universe yeah. is the ultimate AI. It is. And it's kind of weird. It's like, you know, what if it is all this some kind of twisted AI kind of thing, but I don't what if it is? try to spin. I know. What if it is? <laughs> Maybe so, tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so we're going down the rat hole tomorrow night. I got it. So, so if, if you look at that master pattern... No matter how long you believe this planet and this universe, this multiverse has been around, I don't care how long you believe it's been around. Yeah. It's been doing just fine. On its own. All by itself. No matter what we do to and it. And it works a certain way. Yeah. And let's say we go and we screw everything up and this place turns into a carbon dioxide, acid rain, nuclear, radioactive, plastic-coated cinder... We might go away because we've just pissed in our nest and we just ruined it for us. And a chestnut in the beach <clears throat> still pops up. It's going to come back. Let's go. Let's go back to you know this one um, destruction myth that this meteor fell out of the sky and in, in one day an eight thousand degree wall of fire went around the planet and incinerated almost everybody. Yeah. In the time between that common impact and. Uh, 
the modern era when we started to destroy all this beauty. Look what came out of that. Look at the beauty that came out of An that. Oasis. That's that's how this 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 yeah. is planet oasis. This is an oasis in the middle of space. As far as we know, as far as the human eye can see and mathematically calculate, this is an oasis. oasis. So why would we want to screw it up? Let's, let's look at it. let's look how yeah. it was programmed. Follow that lead, work with it, and help to optimize its function. Man, I really enjoyed that conversation. I think you guys did great. I think, um, I hope everybody enjoyed it. The rustic. <laughs> the rustic audio quality is, is, is evident. Uh, but I, the rabbit holes that you can go down when you're just comfortable sitting with a friend right. at a kitchen table, I think it's uh, is really an incredible opportunity to get inside of the brain uh, of, of someone who has lived this, you know. You know, Mark has lived this kind of life from no, the beginning. Yeah, and you can tell Mark's not just writing books. Genuinely, when you meet him, it's a real person doing these real things in real life, and you can and you can tell. Yeah. So I think it's awesome. If you haven't already checked out Restoration Agriculture, go to Acres USA. Order you a copy. It, it's 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 one of the the best books that you can have read and actually put into real life use uh, on a homestead, a farmstead, uh, even an urban backyard because there's so many important uh, fundamental aspects that Mark outlines in that book um, that oftentimes is hard for uh, folks to articulate uh, and understand. Uh, For more on Mark Shepard, be sure to check out New forestfarm.us uh, that, that's his website you can find out where he's speaking next any upcoming events uh, if you want to order nursery stock uh, from uh, Mark's nursery that's forestag.com uh, check him out on Facebook and Instagram at Restoration Agriculture Development and uh, I'm looking forward to just uh, kind of seeing where all this goes you you know you, you go to these workshops you meet incredible folks sometimes yeah. you stay connected and you get to be a part of uh, somebody else's journey. And uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, uh, what's next for all of us. Yeah. I, I'm excited. I hope that we do get to go and visit Ben and Erica again and um, see how all their earthworks turned out and how they've developed and possibly changed or um, how they end up. So uh, it's great because it'll evolve over time, you know, but they were expecting baby number three. So hopefully that's all going well. Got a lot going on there, they too, do. don't they? They have a lot going They're on. good folks. That, yeah. was, uh, that was a good time. Thanks awesome. again, Wagners, for uh, hosting all of us, having us all out, letting us crash your, uh, your, your, your kitchen table for this podcast recording. And we're looking forward to uh, seeing yeah, how everyone does in the future. Yeah, and if you're close to New Paris, Ohio, and or anywhere near that, because they're on the edge of what? In, they're right on the border of Indiana, Indiana and Ohio. Indiana and Ohio. Mm-hmm. And if you're over that way, look up yeah, look Hooting up. Hills Organic Farms and see how you can support them, because they're a great couple. Well, let's uh, 
let's try to get a uh, a farm update show out here real soon. Uh, it's summer, <laughs> fall is going to be here before we know it. There has been it's a beautiful day. There has been an incredible <laughs> amount of things going on between cows and pigs and trees and uh, all kinds of bees, bees and all kinds of fun uh, homesteady things. You've been busy canning, and it's just there's been one thing after another. So many things we want to talk about. It's just like uh, we're running ourselves so ragged when it's when we finally get the kids to bed. You know, we do what the, we do what a married couple who loves each other do at nighttime, and we just get under the sheets and we just go to sleep. Exactly. It's we've just been dog tired. Sawn logs. <laughs> so uh, we look forward to talking with you all soon. We've got a new idea, uh, possibly for uh, kind of a meetup uh, uh, scenario that kind of bridges. Um, face-to-face and this online thingy uh so keep uh keep an eye out for that too uh and we're looking forward to uh to seeing you guys real soon so as always be the change be the lighthouse and keep it contrary we'll see you next time bye-bye guys making the real change are the ones who are, are, are mired by blood and mud and sweat, guts and grime who are out there in the mix trying to figure it out and taking it on the chin and actually mm-hmm. accomplishing way above what they ever thought was possible. They're the ones that are making change.